Welcome to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, a weekly podcast series about books in which food is the story. Each week I talk to authors about their four favourite food moments which drive their stories, add richness and depth to their characters and stir their plots. And this week I'm with new novelist Ingrid Perso, whose much-anticipated favourite super lead, Love After Love, written in Trinidadian prose, tackles the questions of who and how we can love. The winner of the Commonwealth Short Story Prize in 2017 and the BBC National Short Story Award in 2018, Ingrid invited me to her London home for her very first podcast interview over a lunch of some of her favourite West Indian dishes. We have curry chana, curry pumpkin, uh, garlic bodhi, which is uh, some sort of string bean, um, curry duck and... um, curry goat and then we've got two different types of roti we've got what's called basap shot and that's a sort of flaky roti and we've got another one called dal puri and dal puri is a very thin roti which has got um crushed dal in the middle oh my goodness i am gonna put this down and we will come back to you later after lunch, I asked her how, after a career in law, art and academia, she came to writing relatively late. So I came to writing by the um, scenic route mm-hmm. and I did um, a, a kind of whole career as a legal academic. And um, then I thought that really my creativity would be best done um, through fine art. So I went back to school and did a couple of degrees in fine art and um, and it was only when I moved to Barbados and I was looking for something that was easily transportable to anywhere I lived that I kind of turned to writing completely. So you have this kind of dual existence. You live part-time in Barbados because your husband has a top job advising government over there. And you have two boys who, teenagers, who are coming and going with you. So writing is absolutely a portable job. Writing to this kind of level where you're winning prizes, and this is a super lead, isn't it? I mean, there were seven different publishers uh, bidding for you at auction. This isn't just writing while your husband does his thing. I think I got lucky. You know, I um, after the BBC Short Story Prize win, I got a, a really excellent agent, Zoe Waldy, and um, she asked me when I would have a novel for her. And um, she'd read sort of 20,000 words of of the book that I now have called Love After Love. And um, I said, oh, I'll have it for you um, by uh, the end of the year. And this was in October. And so I went home and I thought, oh, my God, I have to produce it. So I just sat down and I worked 21-hour days um, for three months and I gave her the manuscript at 4pm on the 31st of December. Of course you did, because you are a legal person and an academic person and, and deadlines I, are really important to exactly, you. Exactly. I didn't know that when writers say they'll give you a piece, like, it could be this end of year or next end of year. So everyone was truly shocked that I thought that this was an absolute deadline that I had to meet. But I'm glad I did. Yeah. Now, for all those short story writers out there, what is the difference? How do you go from being a, a you know, award-winning BBC short story winner to writing a novel? It's a, it is a leap, isn't it? It is a leap. But, you know, I think the leap is actually not the one that you think. I think to go from... Um, 
a short story writer to a novelist is perhaps easier than a novelist to a short story writer. Yeah. Because it, short story writing is, is as close to writing poetry as you'll get. Yeah. So every word matters. Novels, you have a little bit more leeway. Um, but I think the discipline of doing a short story remains with me when I'm doing a novel. So I write um, them very... I don't have flowery descriptions because I, I can't sort of contain... Those. Well, you do when you talk about food. Yeah, it's very dialogue-based, and then somebody starts cooking. <laughs> now, I mean, actually, that probably leads us to our first food moment. Just give us a little bit of background to the story before we meet Mr. Chetan cooking. So the story is of an unconventional family. Um, we have a widow Betty, uh, her young son Solo, and their lodger Mr. Chetan. And we follow their journey um, through some really difficult times. And the first um, excerpt I'm going to read is uh, when Mr. Chayton is very much established in the house and he's dealing with a recalcitrant teenage uh, solo. And uh, it's a little bit about masculinity and, and expectations. Go ahead. Mr. Chayton. I understand the kitchen. I'm not saying Miss Betty can't cook, but give Jim his gym boots. She had nowhere near sweet like mine. Two of us coming home from work, same tired, so I took over the cooking three times for the week. As it's Sunday, I decided to do my nice steamed kingfish, callaloo with salt meat, rice, and just for solo, a macaroni pie. While the pie was in the oven, I went on the porch. Solo was there swinging in the hammock, head in the iPad as usual. Why lunch not ready? Excuse me? It's past twelve o'clock. I am not your slave, young man. Well, if you're cooking, you should try and finish on time. I told myself, Chetan, breathe. Teenagers. Solo... Don't speak to me like that. Don't speak to anybody like that. The boy jumped out of the hammock and stood too close. Our eyes were nearly level. You can't tell me what to do. You're not my father. I bit my lip and turned away, but he wasn't finished. What kind of man is always in the kitchen cooking or sitting around reading? What happened? You're a buller man? That was a body blow. I retreated to the kitchen. His footsteps drummed hard on the wooden floor and a door banged. I left the food in covered serving bowls, told Miss Betty I had a headache and went to my room. Half of me wanted to punch the little shit. How the fuck he dare treat me like that? And what he know about Buller Man? But anger was only part of the pain. And Solo might be catching up to my height, but he's still a child. It is a novel about, it's an unconventional family, sure. It's a mother and her son. Uh, no spoilers, but the, the father is dead. And Chetan, Mr. Chetan, the lodger, takes the place of both of husband and father, but in a very unconventional way. And we, we will have to talk about the homosexuality because this is really what it is about. It's about masculinity and it's about friendship and it's about love. There's no doubt that Betty loves Mr. Chetan. Um, and in your second food moment, we'll go into that a little bit more. But that 
issue of masculinity. I mean, it it is it feels like something out of the 1950s, but this is modern day Trinidad. Unfortunately, this is very much um, the attitude you'll find in the Caribbean um, towards homosexuality, um, and it, it's um, it is a lack of acceptance, a lack of recognition of the fundamental rights of all members of society. So um, I don't feel I'm exposing any um, dirty laundry that is, you know, at all hidden. This is our attitude. I mean, how will it go down in, in Trinidad? Well, across the Caribbean. How will it go down in Barbados when you go back there? Very interesting. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I don't I don't know how well. I think people will will question why I had to make um a character um gay. They'll think, you know, oh, she's a good writer, why didn't she just do something else? Um, and you write very eloquently about sex, both uh, homosexual sex and, well, failed heterosexual sex. I mean, you know, aren't, are people going to ask you about that? So, um, yeah, the sex thing. What What I never want is for someone to look at my computer search history... <laughs> Because um, in order to write these scenes, I did an awful lot of research. Well, it'll be very interesting to see what happens when you go back to Barbados. But but actually, for me, the sexiest scenes were, were through the food. Oh. So let's go to your second food moment. Let's have you read that one. So this was um, absolutely one of the my most favourite moments. Um, it's been such fun to write. It was a lot of fun to write. And for a long time, my sort of working title for the book was um, something to do with Cascadoo. So this was very um, important to me. So you're just going to read a little my favourite bit, but just set up what's happening here. So Betty has gone to the fish market and... Um, bought some cascadoo, which is the ugliest fish um, you will ever, ever find. It's um, It's got sort of armour-plated um, external um, structure, and you have to, um, and it, it smells of mud. You've got to really clean it, and then it's a leap of faith, but you prepare it with um, herbs and tomatoes, which you stuff inside, and then you curry it and you put sort of pigeon peas in and you serve it with just some plain boiled rice. It is amazing, but it is a leap of faith because it is so ugly and you have to go beyond that. The flesh is sweet. The flesh is sweet. And uh, so they have, um, so they're now sitting at the table. So this is Mr. Chetan, the lodger, and Betty, the mom. Yes, and, and they're... Um, they're having having their meal of um, curry cascadoo. And let's just say that Betty doesn't know that Mr. Chetan is, is gay here. He hasn't come out. And she hasn't had sex for a long time. No. It's really <laughs> sad in some ways, the poor Betty. But uh, there we are. Um, so I'll, I'll just read from where they're in the middle of the meal. He grinned but couldn't reply because he was busy with a fish head. From his grin, you could see this fish was boss. 
curry was trickling down his forearm. It's only after I had wiped the drips with my own fingers and sucked them did I realise what I had done. I swear it was a sight of all that yummy sauce. I wasn't thinking. God is love, yes, because Mr. Chetan ignored me and kept eating. Solo didn't seem to notice. We continued, but I had tasted something even sweeter than the curry, and boops, bam, without a word, everything shifted. I didn't think anything had. I didn't think anything had changed for him, but it had. When he next looked at me, his brown eyes were softer. We finished dinner, both of us focusing on Solo. House rules are clear. The cook doesn't wash wares. While Mr. Chayton and Solo cleared the dishes, washed and packed away, I lazed on the porch, taking the night breeze. Tasting his skin probably meant more to me than to him. The softness in his eyes I might have imagined. It wouldn't be the first time I took a six for a nine. Oh, Jesus, this salty taste of his skin. That was real. It's a beautifully observed piece about sexuality and human emotion and need and loneliness. He's lonely because he's a, a, a gay man who can't come out. She's a woman who has is a widow and she is struggling to bring up a very recalcitrant teenage boy. It's a a really toxic or it's a very potent mix for, for that kind of situation to just explode and it does because of the fish the sweetness because of, that of flesh. the fish but also you know i think um it's um often the case that um women um are very attracted to gay men mm. because they are softer kind of perhaps more in touch with the range of their emotions and so it's um it's absolutely given, I think, that she would have started to kind of have feelings for him. And he, in his confusion about his own sexuality, thinks that, um, you know, maybe maybe this is possible. And then we have this absolutely tragicomic attempt at lovemaking. Yes, absolutely. And of course, it doesn't work because, you know, and that's another metaphor I found for the food. You know, the food is so sweet and sexy and and, and exciting, but ultimately it's not nourishing. How much more important is love than food? It's all about love and it really isn't about romantic love. So that's, you know, the first myth to to get um, over. And I think it was important to, to write about um, love in all its many forms, because so much of society is about prioritizing um, romantic love, Valentine's Day, etc. Mm. So I, I really wanted to explore um, the rest of love that actually might mean more. Yeah. And it's about the quest for real love rather than illusory love. And you go through all sorts of secrets that everybody seems to have. It's interesting because, you know, you very often find food equals truth you know when it all comes down to it it's the food and there's lots and lots and lots of scenes where food is a metaphor for connection and for uh opening up and you know a lot of truths are told there but ultimately whatever mr chetan is is cooking he can't have what he 
really, really wants. Food is a fundamental bond, but it may not be the bond that you think it will be. Um, and the exchange of food and the making of food um, is a lot about um, giving and um, and a deeper appreciation of of people. And certainly in um, in the Caribbean, um, you know, when we think of gathering, the first thing we we want to know is what we're going to be eating. Yeah. And and so food and pleasure and giving is very sort of tied up. Well, I wonder what if that is it then, because you know, like in many many countries and cultures where food is the the connection between the families, and there are lots and lots of secrets and a lot of tensions bubbling under these family meetings that no one's really talking about, but yeah. they keep on feeding everyone and I wonder if there's something in that oh absolutely I think the idea of feeding everyone almost in spite of or to soothe um over difficulties is is very much um there you know so um you know Solo when he goes off to America he takes um the food from Trinidad that will soothe his uncle Mm. and and their family and, and help them through, you know, difficult lives. Um, but the food won't soothe him because of who it's made by. Yeah. So Solo has had a real bond with Mr. Chaitan, and they've had an extraordinarily close and unusual male relationship. Solo is, what, 17? When he lives in New York, he's, he's sort of somewhere between sort of 18, 19. Okay. Yeah. So, but he's grown up with Mr. Chaitan, hasn't Absolutely. he? Absolutely. And he's been picking up on who Mr. Chaitan really is without really knowing. So when he goes to uh, to New York, he's a confused young man, as many people would be when they've been taken away from their families. But all sorts of tensions and, and uh, secrets and lies have been have become part of who he is. How does he manage to eat himself back to his his Trini self. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm asking that question because this is what happened to you. When you left home and you came to university in Britain, the first thing you did was you rang your mum and asked for some recipes. Absolutely. So, you know, I remember um, uh, buying a chicken and finding uh, pigeon peas and making my first pilau so that I could feel less homesick. And, and we, that's what Solo does. And that's what Solo does. So Solo starts off, you know, and he's eating the sort of burgers and pizzas and, and he says lots of Italian food. He's eating pasta all the time. And those aren't really the things that he would normally have had. And, and they certainly don't soothe him. And so gradually he starts, um, you know, planting a little um, herb garden. Um, you know, he's got a little herb garden going on the windowsill because he remembers cutting herbs for his mum, which he absolutely hated at the time and resented, you know, having to do anything like that. But now he's recreating it. And um, and he starts thinking of where he might, um, in fact, go and look for Cascadoo himself in New York so that he could try cooking it. Yeah, and that that is what happened to you. Did you become a good cook? I'm not a bad cook. I'm not a bad cook. Um, and, um, and I do like to feed my family. So <laughs> yes, there's a lot of, there's a lot of feeding. I, I, um, I'm not phased by, by, you know, sort of 20 people for dinner or anything like that. that, that that's a cook. That's a cook. <laughs> that's a confident cook. 
Your third food moment. So the third food moment um, is is just about the memory of food. So um, Mr. Chetan, after agonising for years, actually the first person he comes out to um, in the family is Solo. And um, he picks up the phone and he says to Solo, you know, uh, I'm in love with someone and you're right, you know, things are really good for me right now. Um, but it's not a she, it's a he. And and to his surprise, Solo really doesn't react. Um, he's like, yeah, so what? And just kind of wants to know more about the person. And Mr. Chetan is so happy in that moment that the only thing he can think of doing he does it without even thinking so he goes to the cupboard and starts taking down flour and cocoa powder and he starts making brownies because brownies are Solo's kind of favorite little snack thing that he would make for him when he was a kid and um it's just a very tender moment of, of remembering. And your fourth food moment is a beautiful observation of just the utter ordinariness of cooking with your lover. It happens between Mr. Chetan and his uh, lover, Manny. And, uh, who he's, was his first love and who he met first? on Facebook. Yes, so he, um, you know, had to keep it relevant. So um, they, they hook up through social media after not seeing each other since they were teenagers. And um, uh, he's got Manny for the weekend, and um, all Manny wants is for him to cook him a meal of um, hot roti, tomatoes choker, curry pumpkin, and bygun choker, which is eggplant. Um, and um, they make this this meal together. And I just find it very touching the way they they interact. Yeah. So this is um, Mr. Chetan talking. He finished at the gym earlier than I expected and the food wasn't ready. You go chill out and I'll finish. I can help. My hand and break. Okay, you do the tomatoes choker. Let me concentrate on the roti. The bagan choker and the pumpkin done already. And when I tell you the thing, lash. I got a high five and then kneaded the flour. While the flour was soaking, Manny roasted the tomatoes directly on the gas flame. He let them cook without too much charring and I helped remove the skins. He mashed them to a pulp. I still feel washed with happiness when he's near me doing these ordinary things. Chopped onions, half a hot pepper and some minced garlic went on top the tomatoes. You know how to chunk the tomatoes? Listen, I watched my mother cook, so don't play like you're the only one who knows how to chunk it. He poured smoking hot oil over the tomato mixture, and I watched as he let the oil lightly fry the onions before mixing again with a touch of salt. He tasted it, then offered me a little tips on a fork. Nice. Almost as good as my bygone. While the towel was heating up on the stove, I divided my dough into three smaller balls. Manny asked how I managed to keep my towel so shiny. I winked. He doesn't have to know all my secrets. Sandpaper, grade 180. I rolled the first ball into a thin circle and laid it out flat on the hot towel to cook. 
Let me see if your rooty going to swell. Manny, stop putting your goot mouth on my rooty, please. After about 30 seconds, I flipped it over for the other side to cook. Then came the true test. I pulled the tower to one side, exposing the naked gas flame. Look and learn, Manny, look and learn. As I rotated the edges of the roti on the flame, they puffed up perfectly. He kissed my nose. It's beautiful. It's a really lovely interplay. It's like a dance, isn't it? Uh, just two men having a lovely time in the kitchen seems the most obvious and ordinary mm. thing in the world. Yet it is so dangerous. You don't feel the tension at that time, but you, you know from the rest of the book that this is a really dangerous situation. We do, and... Um and they have, I, I tried to show how normal their relationship is. They're doing what any um, couple in love might do on a Saturday morning, cooking a meal together, but living together, cooking a meal together, um, living um, openly as a couple is, is a, a risky business. Yeah. It's an extraordinary book. It's an extraordinary read. It's pretty much all in dialogue, Trini dialogue, and a lot of male Trini dialogue. How how difficult was that? So um, I found actually that that my strength was in dialogue. So I pushed the plot through dialogue, and um, I just I read my work out loud as I'm writing, mm-hmm. and and that helps, and. Um, it helps to just immerse oneself in um, in the music and the yeah, voices. Yeah, you said you played some calypso music when you were reading to do the audiobook. I did. I, I think I um, when when the um, producer asked me to warm up, that's what I did. I put on you know some of the latest calypso's uh, soca music, and um, that it just takes me back. It warms my soul, warms my heart. And even though I've lived away from Trinidad for all of my adult life, the texture uh, of the language has never left me. It is um, how I dream. It, it's um, it's how I love. And so it wasn't difficult to um, to get that dialogue um, fine tuned. Yeah. It's a super lead for one of the most respected publishers in the UK. How does that feel before the we're talking before the book comes out? The expectation on of, of this book is is huge. So um, the way I'm dealing with it is that I've, I've finished doing my job, which was to write the book, and now the book has to find its own home, and uh, I'm concentrating on other writing and uh, getting the next book done. Yes, and what is the next book? So I don't really want to to say much, except that it will, um, again, look at themes, um, universal themes of love and loss, um, and it's, uh, again, set in the Caribbean. I don't think, uh, for the moment, I'm ready to leave that setting. Best of luck with it. Thank, Thank you so Thank much, Jenny. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please do rate and review the podcast and share where you can. And I'll see you next week.